I'm Kurt LaPointe, publisher and executive editor at Business in Vancouver, vice president of editorial at Glacier Media. And today we have a special roundtable discussion of our journalists with Kevin Falcon, the official opposition leader of the BC Liberals, soon possibly to be called BC United. He's a former provincial cabinet minister who left politics and has returned in the last year from the private sector. Good to have you with us. Mr. Falcon, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Uh, I'm going to be the moderator and I'm going to uh, move around the questions to uh, our various uh, journalists in, in parts of British Columbia. And we're going to start with Stephen Chua, who's with the Squamish Chief. Stephen? Hey there, Mr. Falcon. Thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us. Um, we're going to be asking a few Sea uh, to Sky region specific questions here. And to start off with, I'm, I'm kind of curious to know about your views on regional transit. Um, so basically, it's been a big ask for our entire region for a long time. All the local municipalities have uh, said that they're united with it. Even the uh, local First Nations have also said that they want it. And under both BC Liberal and BC NDP governments, uh, nothing has happened. And I'm just kind of curious what it's going to take for something like that to actually get moving. Sure. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, look, well, I was in government, so that's going back a ways because uh, obviously I retired uh, out of the government in 2012. I announced my retirement, but our big focus was, of course, uh, upgrading and doing the Sea to Sky Highway, which I think, you know, was a very successful project, which, uh, you know, continues to serve the people well along that corridor. But I do think that the population growth in the time since I left office and what we're seeing now, the growth in Squamish, the growth in Whistler, right up and down the corridor. Um, transit, I think, is increasingly crucial, not just for um, convenience sake, but I think fundamentally it's wedded to the economics of, of uh, Squamish and, and Whistler, that we, if we're going to have workers working in so many of these small businesses, they have to have an affordable way to get back and forth, and it's got to be reliable. And frankly, there's, um, I think, a very, very strong business case for it that perhaps didn't exist uh, quite as much when I was in government um, that I think probably exists today, Stephen. And I do think it is something that, uh, you know, we would have to move forward with because um, I, I remember back in my days, the argument being made by, by uh, you know, the, the transit experts was that you couldn't justify it, that it would be, you know, you'd be spending a lot of money and wouldn't get much of a return. I am pretty certain that that uh, calculation has changed considerably. And uh, I, I think if we don't uh, have reliable transit on that corridor, we are going to see a deterioration of the economic circumstances, um, both in Squamish and Whistler. Let's go to Nick Baba and, and the North Shore. Nick? Hello, uh, thanks, Kirk, and thanks, Kevin. Um, so uh, first off here, um, so people across the Lower Mainland obviously feeling the pain of the housing crisis, but uh, as both of you know, uh, living here or have lived here, um, issues are even more pronounced on the North Shore. Uh, new stock adds density, but it's more expensive. There are few options for people working here. So uh, how would the BC Liberals or BC United address housing affordability, especially in municipalities like West Vancouver that are slow to approve any new projects? Excellent question. Um, thank you, Nick, because I think this uh, is just so critically important for people to understand. I spent the last 10 years in the housing business, okay? I was not on the development side. I was on the capital side of the business with a company called Anthem Properties. But 
but I can tell you that um, it is so important that we ignore what politicians promise and we look at what results they're getting. Uh, the NDP government had all kinds of promises they made when they got elected in 2017. They were going to make housing more affordable. They said that the problem was foreign buyers and evil developers and that the solution was to add a whole bunch of costs onto housing. They introduced a blizzard of new taxes on housing. And here we are, they're in their second term, almost six years later, we have the highest housing prices in North America, okay? So this is really critical for us to understand. Not only do we have the highest housing prices in North America, we have the highest rents in Canada. So everything is going in absolutely the wrong direction in terms of results. Why is that? Well, it's a combination of things. One, it's a government, a provincial government that frankly doesn't understand the market. It is really critical to understand the marketplace. Um, we have 100,000 people a year on average moving into British Columbia from either the rest of Canada or, or around the world. Um, the federal government has set very ambitious targets for immigration. When those 100,000 people arrive, they have two things that they have to do first. One, live somewhere, and two, get around, either with a car or, or through transit. And you then have the domestic population that's also you know, looking for you know, places to live and to buy and to rent, et cetera. And that combination has created enormous demand with very limited supply. And only recently has David Eby, who, by the way, was the minister responsible for housing. This was his file. And only within the last year has he suddenly woken up and realized, gee, I wonder if supply might have something to do with it. And those of us that are in the industry were saying, well, no kidding. This should have started years ago. And it's going to take a couple of things. Number one, um, we have to understand that municipalities are a big part of the problem and a big part of the potential solution. We cannot let municipalities off the hook. They have to do their job in delivering the kind of supply that we're going to need. And I have been very clear about the fact that a BC Liberal government led by Kevin Falcon is going to bring in legislative change to ensure that there is timeliness and certainty around the approval process. And that while we establish targets, we have to make sure that there are financial incentives for the municipalities to meet those targets. And there's also penalties for them not meeting those targets because uh, the only municipality that frankly has done a really good job on this is the city of North Vancouver. Uh, Mayor Buchanan has been a leader and she's done an outstanding job in delivering all kinds of market rental, affordable rental, condos, townhomes, you name it. They've done a really good job in the city. Elsewhere in the North Shore, frankly, we've got a long way to go. And West Vancouver and North Vancouver District have to do their bit. Now, part of the challenge that they face or the counter argument that you hear from them is, well, gee, you know, the transportation is so clogged up here. Um, you know, we can't bring more people. Well, th that that is that is partially true. But, you know, the province is, is and any government is not going to make a big investment in transit unless they have the density there to justify the expenditure. And so it's a little bit of the chicken and egg. What I would do, and, and as in the coming months, you will hear what the BC Liberals plan to do to deal with this. Uh, my background is transportation. I was six years as the Minister of Transportation. I was proud to oversee more infrastructure investment and getting stuff built than, than you know any other minister, certainly in the last 30 years. Um, you know The Canada Line, the Evergreen Line, the Portman Bridge, the Pitt River Bridge, the Sea to Sky Highway, the South Fraser Perimeter Road, those are all projects I was directly responsible for um, introducing and getting built. We need new, and by the way, the whole investment that started down in the cut, that actually started under me, believe it or not, back when I was in government working with 
Ralph Sultan and Jane Thornthwaite back in the day. It just shows you how long things can take to get done. But you have to have a government and leadership that knows how to execute on their commitments. So when I say we need more supply in the marketplace, we need to flood the zone with more condos, townhomes, you name it, then I really mean it. But we have to get that done, working with local governments, making sure they do their bit, that the province does our bit, uh, and, and that we start to flood the zone with lots more supply. Only then will you start to break the back of affordability uh, that you see. Now, uh, the final point I'll make, and I'm sorry, Nick, I've gone on a bit, but it's a really, really important subject to me. Um, the final point I'll just make is this, that um, the marketplace is also going to bring about uh, uh, some, some modicum of affordability just because of the fact that we've got rising interest rates that's really slowed down, uh, unfortunately, the entire housing market, and you will see prices start to drop off. But you know, people are now having to get, you know, mortgages at six and seven percent. So it makes it much tougher uh, for families starting out, although there will be price drops uh, in, in a lot of supply, too. But at the end of the day, it is really important to understand that we have to have a steady new supply of market rental, affordable rental and all kinds of housing, especially condos and townhomes that are coming into our marketplace. If we are going to uh, make sure that young North Shore residents have the opportunity to own homes, first of all, and maybe the opportunity to live in the community in which they grew up in. Uh, but it's going to require leadership from the government that isn't there today. And I'll just make one sort, sort of uh, final point here. that The province introduced legislation uh, in, in the spring session that was very, very weak and almost pointless. Essentially, what it says is the province is going to set work with the municipalities to set targets, and then if those targets aren't met, then they'll sit down and have a conversation. And if that conversation doesn't go well, they'll try and provide some advice and some incentives. And if that doesn't work, then maybe just maybe there might be some penalties. That is not going to deliver anything. And the problem is there has already been housing targets set under the Lower Mainland Livable Region Strategic Plan. No municipality, with the exception of North Bend City and Richmond, has ever met their targets. And therefore, it's got to take more than just having a discussion. It, it requires leadership. Okay, we're out of time. Um, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> it's a big subject. <laughs> thanks. Um, let's go next to Haley Wooden, uh, the Editor-in-Chief at BIB. Thanks so much for being with us. On the business front and having recently been in the private sector, you would no doubt be aware that inflation, rising interest rates, rising taxes, labor issues, and more are making it more expensive and more challenging to run a business in BC. So what, in your view, should the current BC government be doing to support employers and business owners, as well as to attract new business development to the province? Sure. Uh, it's a great question, Haley. And I'll, I'll use this analogy. I always say that business is very simple. Um, business people are very simple. They just want to know what the rules of the game are when they go to enter the sandbox and do business. The problem with this government is that business and capital say, OK, let's go and make some investments and try and build a company and build a future and all the rest of it. And this government starts changing all the rules of the game while you're in the sandbox. That is hugely problematic. So you, you look at what's happened since the NDP have been there. We've seen a 20% increase in court, the general corporate tax rate. We've seen the uh, the, the top marginal uh, tax rate in British Columbia is now 53.5%, one of the highest rates uh, across North America. That makes it really challenging to attract doctors. Even nurses that are doing lots of overtime run into that uh, high rate. 
You've got tech executives that you're trying to, you know, build a tech sector here in BC. They run into that blockade. Then you've got the employer health tax that gets layered onto business with, with uh, uh, you know, that have payrolls of more than 500000 a year, which is a lot of them. Then you get the five paid sick days that gets layered on. You know, and you keep getting all of these, and then you get the secret ballot gets uh, uh, gets taken away so that it's easier now to unionize businesses, creating yet more uncertainty. So all of these things individually aren't going to be fatal to business, but cumulatively, they affect the confidence uh, of the business community. And I would argue that what the business community needs more than anything else is just certainty that we're going to have a competitive field. And then we're going to allow business to do what they do best, which is to innovate and go and, you know, start businesses and be creative and get government out of the way, reduce the regulatory burden and red tape that this government particularly is in love with, create a competitive tax regime so that we can be competitive with the other provinces and, and uh, states in the United States. And I have no doubt that given that scenario, that our business community will always punch above their weight. Great. Just Bowser at Burnaby now. You're up next. Thank you. And thank you, Kevin, for spending some time with us this morning. Um, this is kind of, I guess, similar to Nick's question, but um, according to a rentals.ca report, Vancouver has the highest rent in Canada. Uh, Burnaby is number three. Um, and in our community, it is a very, very hot topic, stressful topic. Um, so I was wondering what you would kind of like to see from the government now. Um, in terms of, of trying to help combat those high rent prices. Yeah, and so again, this um, I think an understanding of, of market fundamentals is really, really important. Um, you know, the, the, this government, again, have, they have to be judged by results because uh, everything else doesn't matter. What, what, what we say as politicians shouldn't matter a whit, frankly, if the results that we're getting are really bad. And so this is why I keep coming back to this point. They are in their second term. Uh, the current premier is the former minister responsible for housing. And as you point out correctly, we have the highest re average rents in Canada. That is not a good result. Now, the, the problem is this government makes it worse because what they do is they then say, okay, now we're going to make sure that we uh, continue with really restrictive rent controls that absolutely will guarantee that there's not going to be new capital and new investment in, into the rental housing market. And that's a problem because we need a lot more rental housing being built. And the problem is they've, they've literally made it so that no new capital is going to go into, into uh, market rental. And the reason why you need that is even when you build new stuff, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, but that new stuff, who can afford it? It'll be expensive rent. But they don't understand that there is a knockoff effect. Every time you bring new supply into the market, you get people that are sometimes in the older supply but their income goes up over the years and they say, hey, I'd like to move into that new place. And they do. And that creates an opening in the older place. And then more, more people move in there and it it sort of works its way through the market. So it is, in, it, in, it is incredibly important that we have a government that understands how important it is to nurture the investment of new investment into the marketplace and uh, ensures that we're not penalizing existing landlords for making investments in their existing product. Uh, you can do that. You can still protect tenants, I would argue. Uh, you can still have even have rent controls, but you have to allow enough margin to ensure that existing landlords are able to reinvest into their uh, properties so that they don't become slum properties. And, you know, we continue to to have appropriate um, rental product for the, the folks that need it. 
Okay, let's go on now to uh, Ian Jack, who's the editor and the Delta Optimist. Ian? Thanks, Kirk. Uh, good morning, Kevin. Happy New Year to you. Thank you for taking some time today. Uh, I'm going to sort of a, a address the elephant in the room here in Delta. Uh, you're smiling. You know what I'm going to be asking about. Uh, the, the Massey Tunnel, um, yeah. obviously, this continues to be a hot-button topic uh, in our community. Uh, this week, uh, we're working on another story, and last night in Global, um, was the uh, the overpass uh, debate, the fact that the city of Delta is looking for uh, a second exit out of uh, Ladner as part of uh, the new uh, Massey project. Uh, so how would your government address the biggest traffic gridlock situation in the lower mainland, the Massey Tunnel on this whole situation? Yeah, this... Thank you for that question. I'm not surprised you asked it. It actually, um, you know, I'm not a super emotional person, but I get very angry at this discussion, to be honest with you, uh, because it is just what it is the worst, one of the worst amongst a litany of really bad capital decisions this government has made. Uh, this has got to be, uh, you know, topping the charts. Um, and let's just reflect why. $100 million was invested in preload and, and uh, moving power lines and everything to get that bridge ready to, for construction to start. I remind everyone we had a fixed place bid uh, in place with a very, uh, um, like an outstanding consortium that was ready to go on a price that was $900 million below the upset price that the government had set for in their budget for this project. So everything was in place to have a phenomenal 10 lane bridge two lanes dedicated for transit, four lanes in each direction for commuter traffic, included widening the 99 for, you know, dozens of kilometers in each direction. Um, it would have been huge and it would have been open today, benefiting the fastest growing communities, Delta, Surrey, and of course, Richmond. And instead, what we got was a government that canceled that and then spent years twiddling their thumbs with no idea of what they were gonna do. And then they go and announce this absolutely ridiculous tunnel option uh, with an eight-lane tunnel, two lanes of it dedicated for uh, buses, meaning three lanes in each direction for commuter traffic, which is exactly what you have today when you've got the counterflow. So, and it will take another eight years to get built. It will cost billions of dollars more than the bridge would have to get the same level of, of, uh, of commuter traffic lanes that we have today. And the worst thing is, Ian, that it will not allow for rapid transit, which the bridge was designed to allow for, so that you could run the bridge port Skytrace and Skytrain up and over the bridge right into South Surrey. So I've been very clear that um, this is such a dumb decision. The only good thing that we have going for us is that I know for a fact they'll be stuck in environmental assessment work for at least a year and a half. Because uh, when you, um, the environmental assessment work for doing a bridge is pretty straightforward. And it took about six months for the project team at the ministry to go through the environmental assessment. When you want to take eight concrete tubes and dump them into the Fraser River with all the impact on sturgeon, salmon, and all the rest of the, you know, flora fauna. Um, that's got a massive environmental impact. There's going to be a lot of uh, process they're going to have to go through, especially through the uh, federal environmental assessment work. So that helps us because it delays that project moving forward. And my hope is that I can become premier before it's too far along so that we can stop uh, before they get any construction work done on the actual tunneling and we can get back to building a, a bridge overpass. Because it's 
it's not just really stupid and it's not just delaying things for another eight years and costing billions of dollars more, but you're getting a, a lot less. And as, as Dylan Kruger, your counselor there pointed out, especially that uh, separate overpass that was going to be so critical to Ladner. Uh, this whole thing has just been a boondoggle. And I'll just conclude by saying this, Ian, I know a lot of engineers because as six years as transportation minister, I met thousands of engineers that worked on projects right across the uh, right across the province. And I run into these guys all the time. I have yet to meet a single one that thinks that tunnel is a good idea. Not a single one. Great. Uh, let's go to Tyler Orton, the business editor at BIB. Uh, thank you once again for making time. Uh, we've been talking a lot about real estate. And I, I want to zoom, zoom in on one particular thing that is pushing up housing prices beyond just supply issues here. I'm wondering what a potential government led by you would do, if, if anything, about uh, real estate investors. I'm talking specifically about institutional investors in residential real estate, you know, REITs, you know, such as real estate uh, investment trusts. Um, their goal is to maximize profits for investors. That doesn't really align with affordable housing here in British Columbia. Uh, do we need tighter regulations at all? Or, you know, you did mention maybe the market kind of working itself out. I'm just wondering how you would take on um, this particular issue that's um, having a big effect on a lot of folks here in British Columbia. Well, we got we got to be very careful because this is uh, this would be a classic uh, NDP left wing sort of thing that, oh, big corporations are involved in real estate. Ergo, that must be bad. Therefore, government must come to the rescue. No, we have to be very, very careful about this. A lot of those REITs, a lot of the pension funds that make these kind of investments are what I call patient capital. They, they'll fix up a lot of these pro, these um, uh, these buildings that need, frankly, there's deferred maintenance issues. There are investments that need to be made in those so that you've got happy tenants. Um, and they've got the kind of long-term outlook on their return on investment that they can afford to be patient and uh, make these investments with uh, an eye to long-term capital appreciation. So I think we want to be careful not to chase out a segment of the market that's prepared to make investments in our in in our uh, our real estate sector and our rental sector. Um, it is too easy. This is what the NDP often make the mistake of doing. They try to demonize people. They they try to at first blame the real estate and you know the rise in real estate um, inflation on Chinese foreign buyers. That was David Eby with that ridiculous phony study he had in 2015 that said, oh, you know, 120 homes on the west side of Vancouver have non-anglicized names. Therefore, it's Chinese foreign buyers that are driving up housing prices. And it turns out, because we track foreign buyers, they are an insignificant part of our marketplace. Okay, insignificant. I can tell you, when I was at Anthem for 10 years, we built thousands of homes. We built more homes than the province of British Columbia. And the percentage of, of foreign buyers is less than 3%. Okay, it's minuscule. So it is important that before we start jumping to conclusions as to, oh, the real, you know, boogeyman that, that is causing high prices is those people or those people. No, I think an understanding of the real estate market and how dynamic it is and how you will have trends. Sometimes you'll have REITs move and then they'll move out, depending on the marketplace. You'll have pension funds, including the BC pension funds, by the way, that invest in companies that do make those kind of investments, thinking long term. So I, I don't want to simplistically pretend that the answer to our real estate challenges are by trying to point the finger and identify one group of people that are responsible. So often the case is that government needs to look in the mirror. Government is often the reason why we have these problems. And I recognize that. I've been in the public sector. I've been in the private sector. 
I understand the housing market a lot, frankly, better than anyone in government, most of whom haven't worked in the private sector for much, if at all. And I, I think that that's the kind of premier that we need in this province that really understands how capital works, how um, you know the marketplace works and how we're going to actually start solving this problem by getting more money invested in the especially in the uh, in rental so that we can create much more supply across British Columbia. Let's go back to Stephen in Squamish with a question. All right, Mr. Falcon, uh, one of the biggest gripes and complaints we got over here in the Sea to Sky, especially in Squamish, is gas prices. Uh, we don't pay any TransLink tax, but when we go down to the city and compare what we pay with what they pay, we are consistently being charged more. The NDP government has launched an investigation into this with the Utilities Commission. Um, and basically, they, they did find that we were, on average, getting charged more considering that we are being taxed less. And their approach has just been to name and shame uh, individual gas stations. And um, that's all very well and good, but it hasn't really changed anything on the ground. So I was wondering if a BC Liberal or a BC United government would commit to creating tangible penalties for gas stations that are overcharging at the pump. Sure. So. First of all, um, let's back up for a second and, and just look at the fact that British Columbia, again, uh, under this government now, uh, we're into six years, uh, we have the highest fuel prices in North America. Now, remember, this is the same government. Again, we come back to that supply and demand issue. This is the same government that spent millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars to fight the expansion of the, of the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, a pipeline that's been in place for 65 years. Uh, that's the only pipeline that brings fuel to the lower mainland, unless you you uh, barge it in from from Cherry Point in in Washington State. And yet, you know, this government and John Horgan back in the day said we're going to use every tool in the toolbox to stop that expansion from happening, and they did. They slowed it down for sure. They lost in court, wasted millions of dollars of taxpayer money in that project going ahead. But it was it was certainly delayed and frustrated as a result of NDP intransigence and and trying to stop it. Then. It's the same government that says, oh, my gosh, you know, we've got the highest prices in North America. And then they try to look for, a, a, you know, um, who, who's to blame here? And they start pointing at, you know, the oil and gas companies and all the rest of it. And they forget to look again in the mirror. They are a big part of the problem. Now, the, to the specifics of why they're higher up in, on the corridor there in Squamish than they are in the lower mainland, especially when you're outside of the, of the, uh, of the regional taxes that are, that are imposed, I don't have an easy answer for you. Um, I suspect that there's, you know, going to be some trucking, you know, uh, transportation costs, et cetera. But to me, it's 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 not about shaming and blaming. It's really about recognizing that if you look at the the cost of fuel here, a, a huge chunk of it still is provincial taxes. And one of the things that when we brought in North America's first revenue neutral carbon tax, which I'm very proud of being part of that government back in 2008, North America's first. The key thing about that is it was revenue neutral. Every nickel by law had to be returned to the public in the form of lower personal income taxes and lower business taxes for small business. That was really, really important. So it was a tax shift. But in their very first budget, the NDP said, no, no, we can't possibly give money back to the, to the public. And they changed the legislation so that they are now taking all of those dollars into government, billions of dollars annually that should be returned to the taxpayer. And I have said, that should I become premier, 
we will go back to revenue neutral. We will return those dollars to British Columbians. And then at least residents of Squamish would see a pretty significant reduction in their personal income tax rates they're paying. And that makes at least a difference to help them deal with the fact that they've got higher fuel prices. In terms of why they're higher there, I'd have to do more research. I don't want to pretend to have all the answers there, Stephen. Great. Let's go to Teresa Varanka of Glacier Media. Hi, Mr. Falcon. Thank you for taking the time. Um, my question sort of goes back to what Nick was asking about housing. Um, under the current government, um, it's been announced uh, amendments to the Str uh, Strata Property Act, um, a standalone housing ministry. Um, what's one solution to the affordable housing crisis file that's not being considered right now that should be? Yes, uh, that's the legislation that I talked about that is going to ensure that uh, municipalities uh, are able to get projects approved and into the marketplace in a timely way. The reason why that is so critically important is that uh, in the development business, time is money. If it takes you five to six years to get a project approval so that you can start construction, all of those costs while you're going through that hugely slow, laborious municipal approval process, all of those costs of carrying that land, et cetera, all get added onto the final unit price. And, and when it gets sold to uh, consumers, they end up uh, you know, paying a huge amount of that cost. That's A lot of it is unnecessary. Um, right now, the Urban Development Institute estimates that a, a typical new condo or townhome purchased in the lower mainland, about 25% of the cost is all government fees and taxes. So that's your DCCs, your community amenity contributions, your property transfer taxes, your speculation taxes, your you know uh, public art costs, et cetera. There's a whole slew of them on every pro forma and all of that adds to the final cost. So to me, it is absolutely critical. E everything else, there's lots of improvements we can make, but the most critical improvement is ensuring that there's a, a timely approval process to get new supply into the marketplace. Without that, we're never gonna even come close to dealing with the affordability challenge. And uh, you know this, this government has been too timid, too little, too late in dealing with the challenges in housing. Nick, let's go to you on the North Shore. So I think you started going to this um, when you were answering my last question, but as anyone's aware here, nothing's more top of mind than the second Narrows crossing and then you know, Byway, also the Lionsgate, um, but you know, Going to the North Shore, congestion is bad already, and clearly wear and tear on the, especially the second narrows, is just making issues worse. So uh, would you support another crossing or rebuild the bridge? And then as well, any major infrastructure infrastructure projects are years off. So what would you do to ease traffic in the shorter term? Sure. So uh, first of all, what, what's currently happening right now, uh, and I, as I say, I'm one of the long, I was one of the longest serving transportation ministers. Um, so I've got, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, scars to uh, show uh, on a lot of the infrastructure that I got built, including, by the way, the Spirit Trail, one of the things I'm most proud of, um, having really uh, helped spearhead when I was Minister of Transportation, which I think has been a great uh, improvement for uh, the North Shore, and we need to do more. Um, but when it comes to uh, that crossing, that crossing is now over 60 years old. Uh, it literally is starting to fall apart. I was just going over it about a week ago when a chunk of the uh, the bridge literally fell through and created a hole. And, uh, you know, they had to, you know, 
route traffic around it while they put a metal casing, you know, to, to cover over the hole. Um, so it's, it's going to require uh, a new crossing, no question about it. And, um, but in addition to a new crossing, we also have to look at the transit options. And I can tell you, I'll have more to say about this in the coming months, but I'll just say this, um, that what the current government is doing is uh, time wasting. They do studies and then they'll do more studies and study the studies. I can tell you, there is a stack of studies in the Ministry of Transportation about North Shore traffic that you could pile as high as the ceiling in your office. And, and all they're doing is doing more studies to waste time and defer. So Bowen Ma can go out there and say, oh, yes, we've got a study underway. And isn't that great? We're doing a study. Well, the studies mean nothing. We've studied this issue to death. What's needed is leadership and decision making so that we can actually start getting the transit and transportation challenges dealt with. You've got ferry traffic. You've got traffic from the Whistler Corridor. And you've got a huge amount of commuter traffic coming of workers that are coming in every day to the North Shore to work in hospitals and care centers at the shipyards and in all the local businesses. And then at the end of the day, they're all driving out again because they can't afford to live here. Why? Because there's not enough housing. There's not enough rentals. And therefore, it's too expensive to live in the North Shore. So you have this huge amount of traffic is moving in and out every single day. And what's needed is a government that knows how to make a decision and get infrastructure built, new infrastructure to start dealing with these challenges. And, you know, um, the, the, all the work that was done in the cut has only just recently been completed. That, as I say, was started when I was there. This stuff, you know, you've got to get you've got to get moving on it. You can't just keep studying issues. You've got to make decisions and get going on it. So, um, you know, you'll hear more about that from me. I grew up in the North Shore. I was born and raised here. I understand the transportation challenges probably better than almost anyone here. Uh, because I've also had the opportunity to be a minister of transportation for six years. And, you know, at the time I was minister, we you have to prioritize things, right? So we were doing the, the really urgent issues. Sea to Sky was a really urgent project because of the number of deaths and accidents and fatalities that were, high, that were happening on that corridor, some of the worst in, in the province. So we needed to prioritize and get that done. Canada Line, really critical because we wanted to make sure we had that connection from the downtown to the airport into Richmond. So, you know, we've we've gotten those things done. Evergreen Line got done. Uh, now they're doing starting to do the um, uh, the the uh, corridor and uh, through Vancouver. That's great. But we now have to look at the North Shore. It's a huge priority for me. Great. Haley Wooden. A question on forestry, our largest export industry. Uh, we've seen curtailments from companies as well as a number of permanent closures. What, if anything, should government do to prevent further decline in the industry? Well, you know, if you talk to uh, communities in the forest industry and First Nations, all of whom, you know, play a, a pretty important role in the forest sector, the biggest complaint you'll hear is that this government doesn't talk to anybody. They don't consult with anybody and they make decisions that just come right out of the blue. Again, going back to my comment about the importance of certainty, they have created so much uncertainty in the forestry sector that none of the companies want to invest new capital in BC, and they're not, by the way. They are investing all their capital either uh, east uh, in Canada, eastern Canada, or south of the border, but they are definitely not investing in, in British Columbia, and that's really unfortunate because we are literally losing thousands and thousands of jobs in forest-dependent communities because of that uncertainty. So number one, I think we have to uh, have certainty so that the forest industry knows that things aren't going to keep moving around on them. Number two, we also have to protect biodiversity. The forest industry does have to change. It can't be the model from 25, 30 years ago. 
it's got to adapt to not only our environmental values, but ensuring that we're protecting biodiversity. That means we're going to have to do forestry differently. But the industry is, they're, they're alive to that and they're willing to change. They just want to know what the rules of the game are and they want to make sure they have a government that doesn't keep changing those rules. And, and that, I think, is the biggest objective we have ahead of us, is restoring confidence, working with First Nations and local communities to let them know that they're going to be at the table so we can hear from them and the forest companies because they're an important part of making sure that you know we want them to continue to make investments in our industry and that i think will continue to provide certainty uh, to a lot of the communities but change is coming i want to be clear about that in the forestry sector but we can do it without having such a disastrous uh, situation like we have today let's go back to ian jack thanks kirk uh kevin um I'm sure you haven't been immune to uh, the weather challenges the last couple of uh, uh, you know weeks with uh, all of the uh, you know snowfall throughout the Lower Mainland. Um, several uh, uh, you know municipal mayors and councillors, including uh, Delta Mayor George Harvey, who's also chair of Metro Vancouver, has been calling for a snow summit. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this uh, potential snow summit review, as well as uh, what your thoughts are on the uh, the snow clearing efforts or lack thereof from the uh, provincial contractors? Have they been doing a good job or haven't they? You know, this is, uh, Ian, it's such a common theme. And I know this is going to sound really political, but frankly, is there anything that this government does well? And I just mean that sincerely. Look at our healthcare system, the worst it's ever been. Look at crime and social disorder, the worst it's ever been. Affordability, the worst it's ever been. Gas prices, worst they've ever been. Um, and now you're talking about snow clearing, even snow clearing. Look, I, I was Minister of Transportation for six years. I don't ever recall a snowfall where we had to shut down all the bridges and SkyTrain as a result of a few inches of snow. I just don't ever recall it. I don't know what that, frankly, what the heck is going on here. Uh, but what I do know is that the Minister of Transportation is in Victoria and doesn't even come to the lower mainland to actually find out what's going on and to have sort of boots on the ground talking to the uh, contractors, making sure that the job's getting done. Now, Ian, I've been around long enough to know that sometimes you get lucky in terms of when snowfalls happen. So if snowfalls happen at nighttime, that's great because, you know, people are going to bed and going to sleep and it gives the contractors time to get out and clear the roads and salt them and do all that work while there's very little traffic. Sometimes you get unlucky and the big snowfalls start right around rush hour and everyone's trying to get home and that creates chaos. So there's a, there can be a combination of things. I don't want to just overly simplify this. But I can tell you that, 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 you know, I totally understand why Delta and Surrey and other communities are saying, what the hell is going on? Like, you're telling me that you're going to shut down every bridge and SkyTrain, and then now people can't even get home? You've got people in, spending 8 to 12 hours stuck in traffic because they can't get around? Um, I, I think it a, a snow summit makes a heck of a lot of sense, if for no other reason than to look back and say, what went wrong and what do we have to do differently going forward? Uh, and, and, you know, we haven't heard anything from this government that suggests that they're prepared to look at what they could do better. And, you know, the, the same goes with the floods that took place, the very, very slow response to the floods. You look up in Lytton, they haven't even started rebuilding homes that burnt down over a year ago, for goodness sakes. Like, I just, it, I find it very, very frustrating that there's just this, I don't know, like this lack of, let's just get stuff done and try and improve things and, and when we're doing things poorly, let's figure out why and do it better next time. There doesn't seem to be any kind of self-awareness or self-examination in this government. Tyler? 
Well, I think one of the biggest issues everyone's been dealing with beyond, of course, uh, affordable housing, though, is inflation. Uh, we have economists from uh, TD Bank uh, predicting that inflation will be more persistent in British Columbia in 2023 than in other provinces. What would you be doing about it if you were leading government right now? Well, you know, we're limited in some ways. I don't want to pretend that the provincial government has the sole ability to deal with inflationary pressures. Uh, but there are ways that, you know, government can act responsibly to ensure they're not making things worse. Uh, this government is sitting on, you know, just over $5 billion in surplus as a result of a confluence of good luck events, high natural uh, gas prices uh, over the past year, real estate market that up until recently was very strong. And, uh, you know, some recalculation the feds did on personal and corporate income tax rates from a couple of years back that resulted in a one-time huge amount of surplus. This government is, is going to try and spend all of it in the next three months. That's literally $2 billion a month for the next three months. That is a very irresponsible way of doing it. And the reason they're doing that, by the way, is they don't want to have to pay down debt because we passed a law when we were in government that said, look, if you've got excess dollars at the end of the year, that should go toward paying down debt. It's a responsible thing to do, you know, thinking about the next generation, et cetera. Uh, but this government is, um, is, is keen on spending every penny of it. And I can tell you as being a former finance minister, when you try to spend that amount of money in this shorter period of time, it, it's not going to end well. And it will probably contribute to inflationary pressures because when you're pushing out that kind of money, poorly thought out, um, and government having to make sure they spend it by the fiscal end of March 31st, um, it's not going to end well. And it's it's unfortunately going to add to the inflationary challenges we face. So I do think that government does have an opportunity to be responsible about how we're spending money and making sure that in the areas where there are inflationary pressures, that government's not weighing in there and making things worse. And I don't see any, again, sense of self-awareness from this government uh, about any kind of a strategy to help deal with some of these pressures. I also think that in the areas where we can't do much because there are supply chain issues or there are broader you know, macroeconomic uh, pressures that we're not going to be able to control here in British Columbia, they could do a lot more to help families that are really struggling with this. I worry a lot about families when the, you know, 46% of British Columbia families are $200 a month away from not being able to meet their family budget. Uh, you know, um, inflationary pressures can eat into that money very, very quickly. Um, just the high gas prices have a dramatic negative impact on family budgets. And so I just wish the government would do a lot more, especially with these extra dollars they have available to, to put money back in the pockets of British Columbians and give them a break to help them get through the next 12 months, which is gonna be inflationary. But they won't do that. It'll be government knows best and they'll spend and announce all kinds of money, I guarantee you over the next few months for this, that, and the other thing. But it will not result in better outcomes. And that's what really, uh, really bothers me. Uh, Mr. Falcon, we're cognizant of your time. I wanna ask uh, one last question. Sure. I wanna ask, yeah. I wanna ask it uh, uh, on behalf of journalism. Um, you know, governments are getting better and better at shielding information from public disclosure. Uh, this government provincially has been, uh, has had an excellent track record in that regard. It's won an award uh, for being secretive. Um, at a federal level, uh, access to information now has been reformed in a way that uh, reduces some of the fees so that those seeking information from government don't have to pay those fees. At the prov uh, provincial level, it's gone the other way. Fees have been imposed for applications and continue to be consistently expensive 
uh, when it comes time to acquiring the information, reviewing it, and releasing it. Um, I've heard you on the record once before. I think I've said we recorded you, and we'll play it back to you if you become premier uh, on your commitment to it. But I'd like to hear today, uh, in view of you know another year that you've had to take a look at the culture of uh, of secrecy in government, and what kind of commitment you would make as a leader in your own administration to your ministers, to the public service, uh, to to be uh, more transparent, and what you would do in terms of remedying the legislation that we have here in this province around freedom of information. Sure, I, what a great question, and and I really appreciate that, Kirk, because I, I really want, you, you're all journalists, and I just, I don't say that, look, I'm at a stage in my life where you need to understand the reason I came back into public life is not because I needed this job. And it's not because I had any great desire to be in the media and to try and be an important person or anything. I'm doing this for my kids. And my, I've got two daughters that are 12 and nine years old. I'm doing it for their generation. And I think that uh, I'm very, very concerned about the state of journalism and media in North America, frankly, but certainly in British Columbia, just to focus on our own little neighborhood here. Uh, I'm concerned about, uh, I want the federal government to move more aggressively on on making sure that, you know, the tech companies are paying their fair share back to media companies to ensure that we've got journalism. Because I actually want journalists to be digging into what government's up to. I, look, we're never going to be perfect in government. And uh, I'm okay to take the slings and arrows and have media point out our shortcomings. That's what their job is. And I think, frankly, it makes us better as a government. What we've seen, though, in British Columbia really concerns me. The Canadian Association of Journalists, as you point out, uh, awarded them the, the most secretive government in Canada. Um, the fees that they put on to access freedom of information, I've been very clear. Not only will we get rid of them, I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, give you a better quote, Kurt. We're going to do it in the first 90 days that I'm in government. Those fees are gone. What I have said, the one little subset that I I, I have, the qualifier I put is only that Apparently, there is a very small number of people that abuse it. I, I don't know what that is, but they they use it so much that you could make an argument that from a taxpayer point of view, that's not right. And so I may put something in there to protect against uh, frequent flyers that are just, you know, constantly accessing FOIs in, in a, perhaps an irresponsible way. But with that very, very narrow qualifier, they'll be gone in 90 days. And I want to make sure that that we've got a, a, a thriving journalistic class in British Columbia because I want young kids to be thinking about journalism and going into journalism and knowing that they can have a future. I don't, you know, we we've got the North Shore News on here, Nick. I, you know, when I grew up, the North Shore News was a hugely important newspaper. The North Shore provided really important local information that was specific to the North Shore. And you know, the more I see those papers declining and now it's harder to even get them delivered. I can't even get delivery to my home anymore, even though I love knowing what's going on. Um, that that's not that's not a good thing. And so uh, I'll just say this: within 90 days, those fees are gone. I'm also going to pressure the federal government to do more to support journalism because I think it's really important that we do that, that we have a thriving journalistic sector. And we, as a province, all my ministers in government are going to just know this: that journalists have a job to do. And if they're uncovering stuff that we're doing poorly, I'm okay with that. We're never going to be perfect in government. I was never perfect in government. We're always going to make mistakes. We have to have the humility to say, damn, that's not good. Let's go in and fix it and do better going forward. I just think if we did that as government, 
we would build more trust in the public because I think the public gets tired of, we've got in Victoria, this gang has like 500 communications people. All they do all day is spend all their time trying to make government sound good. And that's why I get so frustrated with their announcements. They're just announcing stuff all the time. I just hope that journalists start focusing on what results government's getting. Ignore all the promises, including from us. Focus on results. At least I can point to a track record. Say what you want about Kevin Falcon. When I was in government, the grass didn't grow under my feet. At least I got some stuff done. So at least I can go and say to people, when I make a commitment, we're going to follow through on it. And I think I've got a pretty good track record for demonstrating that we follow through on our commitments. So um, that's that's how I feel about that really important issue. I'm glad you asked that. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep this recording safe and sound. And yeah. uh, when, you, when you do that, don't worry, it'll come back. I want to thank you very much uh, for your time today. It's been uh, really a pleasure to have you uh, uh, with all of our journalists today who I think have gained quite a bit of a better understanding on where you where you stand uh, as you move toward an election likely do you think do you think the election is 2024 or do you think it's 2023 you know um i said to my caucus that uh look um we've got to prepare for anything so let's prepare as if there's going to be an election in 2023 now david eby's been very clear very definitive much more definitive actually than i would have expected that there won't be one in the spring of 2023 but, you know, up until the election of 2020, they were, John Horgan was saying there wouldn't be an election either. So uh, we're just going to operate from the assumption that we're going to continue to assume that they'll follow the law and that it'll be in October 2024. But we'll make sure that we gear up and, and just be ready for anything, because at the end of the day, I, I, it's the old Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. <laughs> well, thanks again for your time. Thank you to our journalists. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and executive editor at BIB. Thanks for watching.